All right, so we're in John 7. Uh, so you can turn there. And last week, uh, Jeff taught for us from the first section of, of John 7. And, you know, he taught about how Jesus um, went up to the, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, but he did so on God's timing and in his own time, not on his brother's timetable and not on the world's timetable. Um, so just to get some background for what we're going to study today, let's, in John 7, read uh, verses 10 through 13, and then we're going to study verses 14 through 18. So first for background, let's do 10 through 13. Um, John 7. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself, that's Jesus, also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And I'll just read one more. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. Uh, All right, so this is the background to our passage today. And uh, we see here that that Jesus has carefully orchestrated his arrival into Jerusalem. uh, His goal is not to be what all the people want him to be, which is a political messiah. Right? All the people think that he's going to be their deliverer from Roman rule. Uh, they think he's going to be a military leader and lead a revolt and restore the glory of the Jewish kingdom. But he doesn't want to be that. That's not why he came. And he does not want to play into their expectations. Um, and rather, his, his mission is to teach people about who he is and what he's come to do. Right? His job, his mission, is to proclaim the truth about himself. So that's why he orchestrated his arrival in Jerusalem so carefully. Right? He didn't want to show up with a big fanfare at the beginning of the feast, because what would have happened is probably the people would have said, oh man, he's here, let's make him king. You know, They would have done the triumphal entry thing, and it would have been premature. Um, hey, Joel. And... So that's why he didn't come up with big fanfare at the beginning of the feast. Rather, he kind of came in secret in the middle of the feast. See, in verse 14 it says, It was now the midst of the feast, and Jesus went up to the temple, and he began to teach. Right? Because teaching is his main goal. He wants to teach the people about himself. So by entering Jerusalem secretly in the middle of the feast, he could get all the way to the temple and sort of suddenly pop up in the temple and start teaching. And he had that platform now to do that. Um, so he could do that without being forced into, into a premature triumphal entry. And so they're hearing him. The people are hearing him teach. And... Uh, or actually, even before they hear him teach, they're arguing among themselves because they expected him to be there. And they're trying to figure out, um, who is this guy? Is he a good man who is teaching the truth? Or is he leading the people astray? That's their main question. They're arguing about his identity. So that's the background to our passage here. Who wants to read um, verses 14 through 18 for us? That's what we'll study today. Okay, Aaron. When it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, 
My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Thank you. Yeah, so I, in this short passage, we're going to do a short one today, um, I see Jesus here answering three questions about his own authority. Only one of these questions was asked explicitly by the crowds, but he answers three of them. Um, The first question that the crowds are actually asking um, is essentially, where does Jesus's authority come from? Um, And it's not, they don't phrase it that way, but you can see here in verse 15, it says, The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, not having been educated? And, uh, you know, I don't think that they're just marveling that he knows a lot of stuff without having gone to school. Right? This is not, they're not just impressed with his knowledge. Uh, They are trying to figure out what authority is behind his teaching? Where does he get the authority to teach and say the things that he does? Uh, This is very similar to um, another part of scripture in Matthew, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And it's always helpful to bring in parallel passages like this to to sort of understand um, what a scripture is saying. So if you look at Matthew 7, 28 and 29, I'll just read it for you. When Jesus had finished these words, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Right, so Matthew, in um, chronicling the crowd's amazement, explicitly makes it about Jesus' authority. Uh, and to explain this, you have to know something about um, the, the culture of the day, uh, Jewish culture in that time. Uh, they had rabbis who would teach the people. You know, it was very common for rabbis to get up in the temple or throughout Jerusalem and, and teach a lot of people. But they didn't teach like Jesus did. The way they taught was they they never spoke on their own authority. You know, originality was not a virtue in in their culture. They weren't trying to generate like theological innovations. They were they were trying to teach words, and they wanted to convince everybody that the weight of tradition rested behind their words. So they would support their teaching by citing these long lists of previous rabbis, uh, quoting from the Talmud, which is like commentary on scripture. Uh, So they would quote from all these sources um, to show, to prove that they had the weight of tradition behind them. And, and that's how they substantiated their authority, by referring back to the authorities, other, other human authorities, other rabbinical authorities from the past. And so what the crowd is amazed at here is that Jesus doesn't do this, right? It's not just that he didn't go to school and, was, and wasn't learned. It's that um, he didn't connect himself. He didn't rest his teaching on the authority of all that rabbinical tradition, and they're like, why, why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he speak like our scribes and like our teachers? Um, and, but they know, they realize that he's not just speaking empty words, right? They, they know he's not a fool. They know he's not, um, they know that the words he speaks carry weight. They're convincing. They're, they ring true in how he's expositing uh, the Old Testament and teaching um, about God. So they're like, how, where is he getting this authority? 
Um, and later in the chapter, we see this same reaction, right? The, uh, the Pharisees kind of send the, uh, the temple guard to go and arrest Jesus in, in chapter 7. And in verse 44, it says, And some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid his hands on them. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken in this way. So they know that even though he doesn't follow the conventional authorities, that that he's speaking words that are true. Uh, And they don't know what to do with him. So this is the question. Where does Jesus get his authority? Where does Jesus get the authority to proclaim these things about himself? Well, Jesus answers this explicit question in verse 16. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. So this is the claim that Jesus' authority is coming not from rabbinical tradition, but from God himself, directly from him who sent me. Um, So we've seen this a lot in John so far, Jesus standing up and proclaiming that he has this special connection, this special relationship with the Father. He calls calls God my Father And, and, and asserts that he has this very special personal relationship. He says, I was sent from the Father. Uh, and he, he said back in John 5, I only speak what the Father reveals to me. You know, I'm only speaking the words that the Father has told me to say. So he's asserting, he's claiming that, that um, his authority is coming directly from his special connection and relationship with the Father. And uh, frankly, like the Jews and the Galileans are getting really stuck on this claim. They're like, how can this guy claim to have such a special relationship with the Father? How can he claim to be an authority in himself above even the chief priests and the Pharisees? Um, So that uh, prompts Jesus to go on and answer two more implicit questions, right? The explicit question was that they asked, um, where where is your authority coming from? So he claims my authority is coming from God. Well, the other two questions are, um, what are the stakes of that authority, you know, of, of him either being right or wrong about his authority coming from God? And more importantly, what is the proof? So those are the two we're going to look at, right? Uh, okay, what are the stakes of Jesus' authority? And we're going to take this a little bit out of order. We're going to skip over verse 17 and come back to it because that's kind of the meat the meat of what we want to talk about. But just looking at verse 18, here are the stakes. Jesus says, The one who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Jesus sets up this kind of either-or dichotomy. He says, yeah, you need to decide whether you think my authority actually comes from God. You need to decide either I'm speaking from myself and seeking my own glory, in which case you should ignore me because uh, I'm, I'm lying to you, or my authority comes from the Father because I seek His glory. In that case, I am true and you need to listen to me. Um, so... He's the, these are the stakes. He's either a liar who's leading the crowd astray, or uh, bless you, um, or he's seeking the glory of the Father and speaking words that are true. Um, 
So, as a side point, Jesus never glorifies himself. You know, if you look at all his teachings, he's never um, trying to build himself up or generate glory for himself. He's always pointing to the Father, right? He's pointing to the glory of the Father, and then he relies on the Father to glorify him, um, which, which he will do when he raises Jesus up from the dead. Right, so that's how this works in the Trinity. Jesus doesn't, doesn't glorify himself. He doesn't take glory for himself. He glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. Okay, so those are the stakes. He's either a liar or he's the Son of God. Uh, and third question, probably the most important question, what is the proof? What's the evidence that Jesus has divine authority? What is the evidence? And this is the question that verse 17 is answering. And I've copied it up here on the board because it's so important. Verse 17, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I am speaking from myself. Okay, notice the logical structure of this verse. It's an if-then statement. Right? That means there's, there's a precondition and a result. Uh, the precondition is what? Yeah, being willing to do God's will. So if the precondition is willingness to do God's will, what's the result if you're willing to do God's will? Yeah, knowledge, understanding, right? Then you will know, uh, then he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I'm speaking for myself. You'll be able to grasp that Jesus' words come from the Father and carry divine authority, right? This is, this is a little bit backwards from how we expect, right? We expect that, um, and actually, frankly, Jesus' audience, the Jews and the Galileans, expected uh, to first be convinced that Jesus had authority and then step out in obedience and believe him, right? That's what they wanted. They wanted to sit back and, and see him do signs and miracles. And once he had done enough of those, you know, enough of those powerful signs and miracles, they'd say, oh, okay, okay, yeah, we're willing to believe that you're the Messiah. Um, but Jesus came to them and rebuked them for that unbelief. And here he says, you got it backwards. If anyone is willing to do his will, then he will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I'm speaking of myself. So, um, a lot of theologians put it this way, that God's word is what's called self-authenticating. Right? How do you know that it's true, that it's the word of God? Well, there's no greater authority than God who can attest to the, you know, the divine nature of, of God's word. It has to be self-authenticating. God's word authenticates itself. And the way that it does that is it proves itself true by its effects in our lives when we obey it. Let me say that again. God's word is self-authenticating in that it proves itself true by its effects in our lives when we obey it. So, you can see an example of this in Scripture. Um, there's a lot of examples of this, but one, one that jumped to my mind when I was preparing this lesson is in Luke 5, uh, verses 4 through 8. This was when Simon Peter learned this, the truth of this principle. I'll just read it for you. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, Luke 5, verses 4 through 8. 
Now when Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon responded and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught a great quantity of fish and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats to the point that they were sinking. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So you notice what happened here. What, what happened? Do you think Simon Peter understood who Jesus was at the beginning in verse 4 of this text? No. He was just like, well, who is this guy, not even a professional fisherman, telling me to put my net down on the other side? Like, oh yeah, the fish are five feet away from where I've been fishing all night. You know. So he, he doesn't believe, he doesn't understand why Jesus is giving him this command. But what does he do? He obeys. He obeys. He obeys before he understands. And then, once he obeys, once they start hauling in that great catch of fish and they have to call their friends over and stuff, then what happens to Simon Peter? He understands, right? What do you, what does he, you know, he falls at Jesus' knees and says, Go away from me. What? Lord. Now he understands who Jesus is. Now he gets it. And he gets that he is in the presence of the Holy One of God, right? And because he says, go away from me, for I am a sinful man. He calls him Lord, and he acknowledges his sinfulness in his presence. So, Peter saw this principle. He had to obey before he understood. And then, his eyes were opened, and he understood who Jesus was. Um, So, that's the principle. If anyone is willing to do his will... He will know about the teaching, whether it is of God or I'm speaking from myself. And by the way, what does doing God's will mean? Well, it means a lot of things, right? That's, that's what the entire Bible is about. But here's where it starts. Doing God's will starts with recognizing who Jesus is and believing in him. Uh, Jesus said this in the last chapter, in John 6, uh, when the the crowd, after the feeding of the 5,000, was saying, like, what must we do um, in order to do the works of God? And Jesus responded to them and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Right, so uh, that's not the entirety of the will of God, but that's where doing the will of God starts, is believing in Jesus. Believing that he is sent from the Father. Okay, so here's, that's the principle. Obedience before understanding. Obedience precedes understanding. God often um, commands that we obey and expects us to obey before he will allow us to understand. Um, And obedience often brings understanding, the understanding that we want. Now, most people, and I would say especially smart people, uh, really hate this principle. I, I have... Uh, felt I have uh, sort of rankled at it myself in the past because we want to understand before we obey. We all do, right? We all want to understand. We, all, we want to be convinced that this is, you know, in our best interests and the right way to go before we're going to obey. Um, but Jesus says that understanding is the result of obedience. 
And now, I don't want to be like totally categorical and absolute about this principle. Sometimes God does allow us to understand before we obey. Uh, you know, it's not it's not always that we have to obey first and then understand. Um, you know, but but anytime He lets us understand the reasoning behind His commands first, that's that's a gift of mercy and grace from Him, right? He, what we should not do is take that and demand, like insist on our right to understand before we obey God. He expects us to be committed to pleasing Him and doing His will before He's going to. Um, actually reveal truth to us. Uh, so, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's, uh, in, you know, in a majority of cases that obedience comes before understanding, or if it's just like often this happens. Um, but I think it's more about an attitude. We need to be ready uh, to commit to doing His will, whether we understand the reasons or not. Uh, God, God says we must obey before we can understand, and we must. It's a, it's an application of the principle that we must humble ourselves before He will exalt us. There's like, right? We understand that obedience to God is not of our own volition because mm-hmm. our hearts do not desire anything. Actually, we desire everything but God. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you need God to help you become obedient. But then on the other side, you have, you yourself have to yeah. submit to the will of God. And, Right. Yeah, I mean, he's essentially saying you need to have a changed heart in order to, to want to obey God before you can understand that the, the teaching is from God. You know, like, and so, wait, isn't there kind of a chicken and egg problem here? It's, it sounds like a catch-22. How can you believe if saving faith is a prerequisite for having a changed heart? Um, and, you know, I think... W- the first thing we have to recognize is that everything in salvation comes from the Lord, uh, ultimately, right? We, um, he gets all the credit for and all the glory for the work of regeneration in a believer's heart. Uh, it's not like it's not like he does ninety nine percent of the work and we do one percent of the work, right? Or ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the work and we do point zero zero one. It's it's just it's all all of the power comes from him. Uh, and so all of the glory and credit goes to him. So we we may not quite know which comes first, the the intellectual assent to the claims of Jesus or the heart desire to please God. Um, and it does seem like they kind of they kind of feed into each other. We don't know which one God brings first. And uh, but we know that God brings both of those things, right? Faith is a gift from him. Uh, but also, I think this is where um, sort of disentangling and deconstructing our, our modern presumption of reductionism is is very helpful, right? You guys have heard me talk about reductionism a lot in this class. Who who remembers what that term means? Yeah, that's sort of the most common manifestation of reductionism is that like everything that happens has a physics explanation and and that's really the only true explanation right like every decision you make is ultimately brain chemistry um so yeah a reductionist and and most modern people living today are reductionists by default not because we've ever like looked at the question and made up our minds but that's just the, the intellectual bath that that we uh that we swim in all the time so we just think, like, oh, okay, if we find an explanation for something, that's it. 
we don't need to consider other possible explanations or look at other explanations at different levels of reality. But the Bible is very non-reductionist, right? It, it's, it's constantly giving multiple levels of explanation for the exact same event. Uh, does anybody know of an example off the top of your head from Scripture? The Israelite conquest of the Promised Land. You know, who, who drove the Canaanites out? God clearly drove them out. Right? He, he says that multiple times in the Old Testament. I will drive the Canaanites out before you. But who drove the Canaanites out? Israel. They went and, you know, they, their swords were bathed in blood by actually fighting the battles. Right? Uh, another example would be Joseph and his brothers. Right? What did his brothers do to him? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. Um, so who caused Joseph to... Be, to be sold into slavery in Egypt. God allowed the wickedness of man uh-huh. to carry through. He didn't stop him. He allowed the, mm-hmm. the, he allowed the, the evil plan of the, of the brothers to come through and instead of sabotage it, mm-hmm. let, let it come to fruition. Well, yeah, and he did more than just allow it. He actually intended it, right? And, um Joseph says, when his brothers finally come back and talk to him at the end and recognize who he is, he says, don't be afraid. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. So God, God didn't just allow his brothers to sell him into slavery. God actually planned for that to happen. He intended it, right? So I'll ask again, who caused Joseph to be sold into slavery? God. Who caused Joseph to be sold into slavery? His brothers, right? You both both are both are true answers, and both are explanations, but they're explanations at different layers of God's reality, right? So, so the way you need to think about it is like there's there's layers of reality, and they each have their own sort of causal dynamics and logic, right? God is over and around and behind everything, and He's got the master plan. He's got the ultimate causal logic that's going on. But then he's created human beings with what's called agency. You know, we have the ability to make decisions and we cause things too, right? We've got our own causal logic. It's not it's not that we've carved out this space within God's universe where we're autonomous and can like subvert his will or anything. Our causation operates within and, and underneath God's causation. And so you need to you need to kind of think about it like that. And this is very helpful once you've sort of like, you know, taken the, the modern assumption of reductionism out of your mind, it's, it becomes a lot easier to uh, understand or at least wrap your mind around questions like, like what you're asking, Aaron, you know, about salvation and, and this sort of chicken and egg problem of where do you get the, the faith to believe and where do you get the changed heart to desire God, right? So, of course... God has to cause that in you. He has to cause the change in your own desires and in your mind. He has to cause you to have faith. But that also can look like, at a human level, a series of events that led you to believe and desire to do as well. Right? You might be able to point to, um, you know, I had this objection and this objection, and I talked with a friend, and he kind of answered those objections, and then all of a sudden there was no reason for me not to believe. You may be able to tell a story like that. So that's one level of causation. But at the other level, God is changing your heart and your mind. 
Does that, does that make sense? Does that kind of help? Okay. Um, so, why does it work this way? And that clock is really broken. I'll just, I'm just going to take five more minutes and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, Aaron. Um, so, I just want to say, why does it work this way? Why does it work this way that, that obedience comes before understanding? Um, it's because we can't set ourselves up as the judge of God's word, right? Like, like the, the Jews and the Galileans wanted to do. They wanted to sit back and, and evaluate Jesus' miracles, evaluate his messianic credentials before deciding whether what he was saying was true. Um, but that means we are, if we're trying to do that, we're trying to set ourselves up in authority over God to judge him. Um, that's why obedience has to come before understanding. Because uh, we don't have that authority. We don't have the authority to evaluate his words. We don't have the neutrality to be unbiased, dispassionate observers of, uh, and evaluators of Jesus' claims. We can't do that. We're, we're stuck in our sin. We're committed to our own, um, to our own you know, personal kingdom. And so God says, no, you have to humble yourself. You have to obey before you can understand. Because you can't be just like, you can't just consider Jesus' teaching as some abstract proposition to be evaluated from a supposedly neutral ground. Uh, we have to commit to obeying, and we have to commit to pleasing God, willing to do His will, before our minds can actually grasp His truth. Um, so, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, talks about this same principle, right? It talks about how practicing the will of God is actually a prerequisite for understanding doctrine. Not even just basic truth, but advanced doctrine. Hebrews 5.14, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Hebrews 5.14 says, solid food, which means uh, advanced teaching, right? Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? So you see the causal order there, right? The, the people, before someone can understand the solid food, the advanced teaching, he has to... Uh, have been constantly practicing this discernment of good and evil and obeying the will of God. Right? Obedience comes before understanding. Not just in salvation, but even in, in the Christian life, in the advancement of your, your discipleship. Um, John Piper uh, loves this verse. He wrote a, a, a uh, you know, little essay on it, and he comments this way. He says, getting ready to feast on all God's word is not first an intellectual challenge. It is first a moral challenge. If you want to eat the solid food of the word, you must exercise your spiritual senses so as to develop a mind that discerns between good and evil. This is a moral challenge, not just intellectual. The startling truth is that if you stumble over understanding Melchizedek in Genesis and Hebrews, it may be because you watch questionable TV programs. If you stumble over the doctrine of election, it may be, bless you, because you still use some shady business practices. If you stumble over the God-centered work of Christ on the cross, it may be because you love money and spend too much and give too little. So there's a real connection between our obedience and our ability to grasp the, the truths of God. And just two examples of this. Um, from modern times. Uh, have anybody, any of you heard of Rosaria Butterfield? 
Okay, one person's here. Well, I know Jen. I know you know her. But she is someone, she's someone who has lived this truth, this principle that obedience precedes understanding. Actually, she coined the phrase uh, that is the title of the lesson here. She was a professor of English at Syracuse University. Um, she was also uh, a self-identified lesbian. Um, so, you know, she was uh, obviously very hostile to Christianity, to Jesus, to the gospel. But, um, you know, it's, it's an amazing story uh, that I will just condense down to uh, one sentence. Through the preaching of a local pastor, God opened her eyes and drew her to himself. She wrote a book about this. I would encourage you all to, to pick that up and read it. Um, so along the way, though, it wasn't just like instantaneous conversion. Along the way, she struggled with a lot of questions that she wanted to understand the answers to. Why is the gospel true? You know, why is this thing that this pastor is proclaiming to me actually true? Why is homosexuality wrong? You know, why do I need to repent and believe in Jesus in order to be saved? Those kind of things. She wanted to understand why uh, she needed to do all those things before she would believe. Um, But later, she wrote this. Here's a quote. Obedience comes before understanding. I wanted to understand, but did I actually will to do his will? God promised to reveal this understanding to me if I willed to do his will. The Bible doesn't just say do his will, but will to do his will. Wanting to understand is a theoretical statement. Willing to do his will takes action. And eventually she did. Eventually she sort of gave up her pride at needing to be convinced and decided to submit to the Lord and do his will. And then later she did understand. God did bring her understanding, and she wrote a couple of books about that. Um, Really amazing story. Um, Another example is from my own life. I've I've lived this truth before, that obedience precedes understanding. Um, And I lived it with respect to the doctrine of creation. Uh, I've mentioned this a couple times already in this class. Uh, But I used to be what's called a theistic evolutionist. I I used to believe that um, Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, were not literal. They were more theological and mythical. That God used... Uh, the process of evolution as, a, as the means to bring about all the diversity of life over hundreds of millions of years, billions of years. Um, that, w- that was my belief uh, up until about 10 years ago when, you know, I did, it's, it's not like I lost confidence in the scientific uh, account of evolution. What, I, what happened was that I started reading the Bible a little bit closer and saying, wow, you know, Genesis 1 really is saying that God made the earth in six days. I didn't want it to be saying that. I was like, no, this can't be what you're saying, God. You know, but I, I was convinced that's actually what it was saying. And so I reached this, this kind of decision point where um, it was like, okay, now that you know what God's saying, are you actually going to believe it? Um, or are you going to withhold your belief until you are able to sort out all the scientific questions and all that stuff. And I knew that that would be disobedience, right? It was, it was a choice. God was saying, I'm not going to give you the understanding right now of how, of how all the, the evidence from science and nature is explained. Uh, I'm going to demand that you obey, uh, require that you obey, before I give you that understanding. And so... I had that choice, and it was an awful choice to make. It felt it felt terrible, but I chose 
to believe his his word and I chose to submit to his will and then you know over the next several years he did give me a lot of that understanding for how Genesis explains the evidence from nature I mean I don't, I don't think that my understanding is complete um, but certainly I have like a satisfying level of understanding now about how um, how God's account of his own creation is true um, but yeah that was that was a big decision point for me uh, where I had to sort of humble myself and and choose to believe and, and obey before I could understand um, and so you know just to leave you with some application please think about how this principle is working itself out in your life you know where is God asking you to obey before you understand there's a lot of commands in scripture that um, that don't necessarily make sense to us. You know, we spent we spent six months going over um, manhood and womanhood and sex, and um, you know, a lot of the commands around God's commands around men and women, the different um, sort of charges and, and callings that He's given to men and women, um, the, and the commands around sexual purity. Those things don't make a whole lot of sense to our modern minds, oftentimes, um, but. God calls us to obey them before we understand why they make sense. I mean, hopefully that last six months was helpful in, uh, in, your, in promoting an understanding of why those commands make sense. But uh, you will still probably at some point need to come to obedience before you will get full understanding in these things. So just think about that. Maybe it's some other issue. Maybe it's some other other doctrine or some other command of God that that He's asking you to obey before you understand. Um, I would just encourage you and urge you to to humble yourself, right? To submit to the Lord, even when you don't understand why He's given you that command, because uh, that's where that's the path of blessing. You know, He will lead you into understanding. He will He will satisfy your soul in that regard. Yes, Jeff. I'm just going to throw that one Oh, no, no. Yeah. Um, one little added kind of historical, colorful thought behind this. Realize where they are. They're mm-hmm. in Jerusalem. All the Jews are coming. Mm-hmm. And they're all about obedience. Mm-hmm. They are all about their lives are structured around obedience. Yet, they are far from them. Mm-hmm. Very far. And I, I would almost say a quarter of a step or maybe arm in arm with the obedience and it lands on your, your statement of your verse of purpose here is if anyone is willing yeah. willingness kind of comes maybe a quarter step before the obedience mm-hmm. just like Peter he didn't understand but he he didn't really obey but he was he was at least willing mm-hmm. and once you step once you are willing that's when God provides the, you know yeah. my words will be with you you know what when you when you share the gospel, it's a scary thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what the other person's going to say. I don't know if they're going to the watch. But if you're willing, God is right there with you. And then the, you know, the obedience follows, and then the understanding follows. Like, wow, yeah. It really wasn't that difficult. Now, that's not all the cases. Sometimes there's a less, you know, well, you know, maybe I really need to go back and really wrestle with creation versus evolution. Mm-hmm. But you go back, and then the next time, not only are you not willing, but now you have the knowledge of how to do That's an excellent point. I mean, 
Absolutely, right? It's not about the obedience itself. It's not about, like, the checklist of, oh, hey, God, I did all the things. Now you can give me understanding, right? A little bit, yeah. But it's more, it's about the willingness, right? The, the commitment, the heart... Um, the heart commitment to do God's will, to please Him, right? That's what, that's what is needed here. Yeah, exactly.